Good morning, everyone. Lovely to be at a nice summer day up here in Robertson. <laughs> Only the best weather. Uh, it's actually a great occasion. Um, the fact that you have three baptisms this morning is something I hope you are thankful for. And for the people who are coming up to baptise, you'll be praying for. Uh, it's a reminder that God is at work in the world and work at the world calling individuals to come and know him. And so that's a, something as a church you really got to be thankful for that God has so kind enabled that to occur. And so uh, rejoice in that moment. I look forward for the baptism in a short little while. We are looking at that passage from Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. As Graham told me, you're working through Mark's gospel. Thank you for confirming that. That, that, that meant overwhelmingly on top of the material. And let's see, did you do the rest of Mark 4 last week? Uh, we're not doing every verse. Oh, not doing every verse. Okay. The best of Mark. Okay. <laughs> best of Mark. Well, we've got a very well-known part this morning. I'll pray and we'll look at it together. Father, we do pray for ourselves that you open our mind and heart to the truth of your word. A part of the Bible for some of us uh, is familiar and we're aware of what happens. Help us, Father, to stop and to rethink and regrasp and understand Jesus as a Saviour and Lord and Messiah of the world and why he came. And help us, from the Father, in doing that to be better equipped to love and serve him in all that we do. Thank you for this time we can spend together and by your Spirit speak to us now, we pray. Amen. Well, last week we've had lots of uh, rain. I think you would have had, we had a few storms down on the coast. You had storms come up this way at all? No, a few storms. Every now and again we get those big storms through. Uh, next time a big storm comes rolling through, I want you to try something out for me. Uh, you must do it when no one else is around you by yourself. This is what I'd like you to do. Storm at its most intense, go to the back of your house or wherever you are and then speak to that storm and tell it to calm down and be quiet. Just speak directly at it, no one's around, and just say, calm down, stop. And I can guarantee what will happen when you do that. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> You'll look ridiculous. And that's why I say do it alone, because if you did it with other people around, people say, what sort of bizarre behaviour is that? And that's the point of this story. Jesus could have looked quite ridiculous when he stood up in that boat in the middle of that storm and tells the, the wind and the waves to stop, because if it didn't, he just would look just straight out ridiculous. But of course, it did obey him. And he rebuked them. And he didn't have to do it this way. God, I ask you, please, on our behalf, do something about this situation. It was direct words. No mediated word. He speaks directly at it and it obeys him. Of course, the disciples, this is just simply overwhelming. The response is actually one of terror. They're terrified of that very thing, as would be the case, I want to say, if you did speak to that storm and it stopped, you'd be terrified of what, what was that all about? But here they're terrified because Jesus speaks, we're told they are terrified, asked each other, who is this? 
even the winds and the waves obeyed him. Of course, these are disciples who were fishermen. So they'd spent the day with Jesus. Uh, they travelled around for a while by now with Jesus. And uh, this is after a heavy day of teaching. And we know that Jesus is tired, exhausted from all that he is engaged with. And so he has a sleep on the boat. The boats, uh, we've got some archaeological evidence of the, the sort of fishing boats around that day. On about 12 men or people and they had a number of these boats, and these are fishermen who are used to the conditions on Lake Galilee. If you're not aware, Lake Galilee is about 250 metres below sea level, and the way the condition of the area has, you can have these winds come out out of nowhere, very suddenly, with no sort of things around that you can predict, and just stir the waves up. They, they record three metre waves suddenly developing on the lake. So this is one of these occasions. These are fishermen who are used to the conditions, yet they're overwhelmed by all that's uh, occurring. They're fearful. And Jesus simply stands up and says, stop. And it stops. On one level, the reaction of the disciples is a bit of a puzzle. They'd already witnessed a fair bit of what Jesus has done. Um, they had been from him with him from the beginning. If we just go through Mark's Gospel, we've got the Bibles there, just go back to chapter 1. We'll just flick through a few little things. <clears throat> After Jesus uh, calls his first disciples, uh, we're told that they followed him. Uh, he, verse 17, come follow me and I'll send you out to fish. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And so, so here's the word he says, come follow me and they drop everything and immediately go leaving their livelihoods behind their family business their fishermen as a family business leave that behind the dad's superannuation is walking out the door <laughs> and they just go it's a sign of the authority he speaks that they would respond with immediate response then we have the authority of his teaching verse 21 they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at this teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. One who had authority. There's a sense where they knew instinctively when he spoke, he carried himself in a way that people said, he knows what he's talking about. There's not, he doesn't have to refer to, I say, but you know, Graham Thomas, he says this. He doesn't quote anyone. He simply speaks the word, and when the word is heard, it carries his authority with it. Here's the authority to cast out demons, uh, verse 23. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And what does he do? Be quiet. Jesus sternly, Come out of him. And then pure spirit shook the man violently and came out with him a shriek. With a word, he commands and it responds with one simple word. And the demonic world of that age was a troubling reality. We disappeared, but we'll come to that in a while. But no one could control that. But here Jesus enters it and with the authority that he speaks, the whole world that was hidden and so troubling calms down. Here's the authority to heal. And we know that all the way through. Verse 29 of chapter 1. 
As soon as they left the synagogue, they went to the chains and John to the home of Simon Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. She went to, uh, he went to her, took her hand and helped her. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. In the evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out many demons. Here he heals all who come. With a word again, not do these things and eventually you'll get better. With a word, and we know that happened with the lame and the deaf and the blind. He simply speaks and it happens. He deals with social exclusion. And in verse 40, the man with leprosy. In that day, leprosy was not just a disease. It meant you were excluded from society that normally you were a part of. You no longer could fit into the normal things everyone else did. And he comes along and heals a man with leprosy and brings him back into the life of the community with a word. Had the authority to forgive sins in chapter 2. I don't know if he did this one. <coughs> Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Because that's what happened here. The man got lowered down through the roof. He thought he was going to get healed. He did get healed. But Jesus forgave his sins. And people rightly said, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? And here he takes on the prerogative of God without sort of an apology and says the word and he assumes the sins are forgiven. He said, well, what's harder, forgiving sins or healing the man? He does both. He has authority over the Sabbath. In end of chapter 2, the Sabbath was the high point of the Jewish religious life. And he says, well, I, I'm the son of man. I have come to tell you what the Sabbath is for. And that's like, it's hard for us to grasp how extraordinary that is. It's like, I've come to tell you what Australia Day is about because I can define Australia Day for you. And you can say, well, who are you to tell us what Australia Day is about? Well, he's come to, to tell them what the Sabbath is about with that sort of much of an apology. And then he's also, lastly, in the end of chapter 3, he redefines what family is. Just look at chapter 3, verse 34. <clears throat> uh, when he looked at those sitting in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He's redefining the relationships that matter in the world. He's actually saying something extraordinary for us mums and dads. He's saying his allegiance to him exceeds the allegiance to your very family. And you're going to say, I've heard that. But that's an extraordinary word to bring to bear. You can leave your families, he's saying, because you belong to me and my family. And that family is of more significance than your own earthly family. I'm not saying you're dismissed, but you're saying as far as allegiance goes, that matters. So the disciples have seen all this since the very beginning. A whole array of Jesus' authority being asserted in the world. Yet they get to this point in chapter 4. Now we're back to chapter 4. I knew we'll get there eventually. And he calms a storm and they go, Wow. And I would have thought they could have gone, wow, lots of different times, couldn't you? There's lots of occasions you say, well, that's pretty overwhelming. That's overwhelming. 
But here, at this moment, we come to the point where they say, we've gone beyond anything we could imagine we'd get to. We could live with all those, but here's the moment we go, this is beyond anything we could imagine. Now, we'll get to the reasons of that for a while, but just the nature of this authority that Jesus brings. It's not a deferred authority. It's not a second-hand authority. It's authority that resides personally with him. Now, Australians, we we have this idea that we're anti-authoritarian. That's the pat on the back of the our shoulders we give to ourselves. It's actually not the case. I, I'll tell you an example. I know, uh, do anyone here uh, make your way down the coast to go to the beach ever? You know, there's a place that's called the coast <laughs> where there's waves. It's, a, it's an amazing place. I, I encourage you to go there occasionally. Uh, when you go to the beach, we have, in Australia, more than anywhere other country in the world, we have all these signs. And the signs tell you what you can't do. Science never tell you what you can do. Science tell you you can't do this, can't do that, can't do this, can't do that. Can't. And you, you, I've seen a sign with almost 12 different things you can't do. On the whole, most Australians go, okay, well, that's what you can't do, we won't do it. Could you imagine what it would be, in Australia there's no signs, but a person wanders up and down the beach telling people what they can't do. How long would they last? <laughs> we won't listen to them. But we'll obey those impersonal signs. Here's your problem, Australia. Jesus' authority is not impersonal. It's in your face. Telling you. It's a personal authority. And it brought about strong reactions in his day. And it brings strong reactions in our day. The fact that sometimes it brings no reaction is because people haven't got any sense of who they're dealing with. Because the response of the disciples, who is this man, and this is overwhelming, is actually the right response. Anyway, it brings about these strong reactions about his authority. And what's the nature of his authority? Where does it come from? And why does he have this authority in the first place? As Mark tells the story, this authority sort of comes into the world and all these extraordinary things start to play out. And we've got to step back, well, what's this all about? Why, why is this here? What's Jesus trying to do? Is it just like, well, I had a spare Sunday and I thought I'd just cross the water? What, what's all this displaying for us? Well, it's displaying two things. It's the nature of the kingdom that is establishing and that this kingdom is only going to be established through conflict. So it's kingdom and conflict which are behind it. The kingdom you might be aware of is the kingdom of God. He's came to preach the kingdom of God, but start at the very beginning of the gospel, beginning of the good news about Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God, and we're told this, and he comes and he preaches uh, about the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, come near, repent and believe the good news. He comes as the Messiah, the Christ, of God's promised kingdom that God is going to establish in this world. This is about the coming of the perfect place of righteousness and peace, and he's going to establish God's rule properly in this world. It's going to be inaugurated in Jesus' coming. It's eventually going to be consummated in his return and is established finally in his death. So inaugurated, established in his death and resurrection and consummated in return. But this is all to do with God's promised perfect kingdom. 
and we still have this today. But how is this kingdom going to be established? Is it just going to happen easily? No. From the very beginning, the kingdom is going to be only established through conflict. And there's a massive outworking of conflict from the very start. The coming of Messiah brings about an escalation of conflict. Now, at this time, the average Israelite or Jewish person who said, what's your big problem you've got in first century Israel? And all say, oh, getting rid of the Romans. Those Romans have come in and ruined our land. If we could get rid of the Romans and establish our rule, we all would be right. Everything would be good in the world. And their enemy, therefore, was Rome. But Jesus comes along and says, doesn't deny there might be some political problems. And in fact, you can read his life politically. But the big issue for this average Israelite was actually Satan and his dominion of darkness, which he presides. The world is held captive by Satan in a period of bondage and darkness, and Israel was part of that. And he's come to provide liberation and freedom to take those who are captive, release them from where they're in prison, and give them life, eternal life, by securing that life through his establishment of his kingdom is to free people and the authority of Jesus has come to destroy the real enemy. And the real enemy is being shown to be destroyed through all this authority he's displayed in the first four chapters. Now, I don't want to minimise, you know, a week where we've had war break out in Ukraine, the terrible things of a world that is not right. But behind all that, I want to keep on saying there's a real problem the world is dealing with which is spiritual ultimately we're not going to solve everything by political ends are we please say no doesn't mean we don't invest in those or don't pray for them and ask for peace but ultimately behind all that is the spiritual of the problem the world has the spiritual reality of the world that is not right and that's what jesus is doing with that He's getting rid of the darkness, disorder and chaos of a world that is not right and establishing a world that's eternal, full of peace and righteousness that will never fall apart. And so he comes along with this authority and it precipitates a conflict with Satan that has cosmic implications. And it it's not just going to be just resolving people's life. It's resolving the conflict that's a fab- part of the whole fabric of our world, a world that's not right. And so the Messiah comes with this to establish his victory ultimately over all things. The opposition is decisively defeated and God's kingdom is established and it affects all the world. And here we get to Roman, uh, Mark 4, Romans 4. Mark 4, it also involves a world that disordered. In Jewish thought, the sea was the place of chaos. The most uncontrollable thing they could think of in the world was to go out on the ocean or water everywhere. That's why you're up in the highlands, isn't it? You're safe and secure from all those terrible things. I'll have another go at you in a sec. (laughs) But the world of chaos of the water... the sea was a place that you couldn't even begin to imagine control. In fact, the Bible says there's only 
One person could control the sea. You know who that was? God. God could speak and control it. But apart from that, it was a terrifying place. And so what we have here is showing Jesus has also the capacity with authority to control the chaos of the natural world. And all this conflict that's going to work out has a crescendo in Mark's gospel. I'm not here to do it unless you invite me to come back in the following weeks. And I won't come even if you invite me. Uh, uh, It builds up to the point where that crescendo of conflict comes to a head at the cross. That's the point where the victory is won. In one level, it looks like the point where victory is lost. But in God's providence, the very means by which the establishment of that kingdom is secured and it never is to be overcome. And it has cosmic, global implications. So the salvation Jesus wins is personal. <clears throat> we'll have that in a moment with our um, people who are baptised. But it has an effect on the whole world. So when the disciples see all this, how do you think they have done? One level, they really got this question, it's not just who is this, the real behind the scenes question is, doesn't he care? Doesn't he care what's happening to us? We're following him, look what's happening to us, doesn't he care? And of course, what they don't realise is Jesus is always attentive and their fear is what the problem is. It's not the cry to Jesus that there is a problem. It's a cry because they simply represent a time when they have no faith. Do you notice the extraordinary way that Jesus speaks to them? Verse 40. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Still, you still have no faith. And you say, that's an extraordinary statement. I've already said they've left everything to follow Jesus. They've seen what he's done and seen his teaching. But here at the moment, they have no faith. And we have to untangle what Jesus is getting at. And we'll come to that. But for the moment, their fear has driven out whatever faith they'd have. And that's the way faith and fear work. Either faith chases out fear or fear chases out faith. The fear which is right is to make sure you understand who Jesus is and be all inspired by him. That's the right fear. The wrong fear is to think that he's powerless to do anything for me. Their situation looked hopeless. And I'm sure many of us have been in situations, maybe now, we feel like he can't do anything for me beyond his capacity. Whatever's going on here, I've moved beyond any realm where he can do anything. Well, that's the wrong fear. And Jesus shows his commitment to them even when he's sleeping. And I'll say that. Jesus' commitment to them is shown while he's asleep or when he woke up and calmed the storm. They were secure both ways. So I want to say Jesus will never rebuke us if we call out to him. But an important lesson is to make sure that we have the right fear about who we call out to, which is who is Jesus, the Messiah. 
and do with the nature of his work. So what he displays here is something that's been hidden to a certain degree. It was a little bit exposed when he forgave the sins and say, who can forgive sins but God alone? But one level that could be read and moved on. But he displays the very characteristics of God. Because I said, who's the only person who can control the sea and the wind and the waves? God. And here he speaks and takes on the prerogative of God. He can speak and they're overwhelmed. Did you notice the other thing here? In verse 38, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. He bought a cushion for the crossing. He wasn't concerned. In fact, I can say if any of you brought a neck pillow to church, I am concerned because I know what you're planning to do. (laughs) He brings a a cushion and he's not worried. And it's a miracle of the nature over, he has over everything's around him. What the disciples failed to realise is that he is God's Messiah. This is the failure of faith. He's the Messiah come to establish God's kingdom. If he's going to establish God's kingdom as Messiah, he's not going to die on a boat crossing. He's not going to drown on the lake. That work is not completed, is it? The kingdom hasn't been established. If they really have faith in him as a Messiah, this is not the time when he's going to die. In John's Gospel, he said, my time has not yet come. You know, this is not the time. They should know that if they know what they're trusting here is Jesus. So when he says, you have no faith, it's not this moment, have a good look at yourself and see what you've got inside you. He said, no, who are you trusting here? If you're trusting me as the Messiah, you should know. There's no way known it's going to be the case that we're all going to perish here. In fact, later on Mark's Gospel, Mark 8, Peter does get this point. Remember Jesus said, well, who do people say I am in Mark 8? And Peter, on speaking on behalf of the disciples, said, well, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus basically said, you're right. And then Jesus straight away said, yes, and as the Messiah, I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to die a bad death in Jerusalem. And what did Peter do at that point? Remember? Come here. I've got to have a word to you. You got it wrong, Jesus. Uh, Because if you're the Messiah, Messiahs don't die. The Messiah comes along, he's victorious. He defeats everyone. Uh, Messiahs don't die like that. And the point is, he's right. He doesn't quite get the resurrection that is to come. But they're wrong back here because Messiahs don't die. The work is not complete. He hasn't finished what he's come to establish in this conflict that's playing out. So here is Jesus in this situation. Go back to while he's asleep. I said before, whether he's asleep or he's awake, he's in control. How can that be? One of the characteristics of all of us when we're asleep is how powerless and weak we are. We say, oh, how cute that little baby asleep You mightn't be cute when you're old, but boy, you're still powerless and weak, aren't you? You can't control the world at all. In fact, it's one of the things you've got to puzzle over. Why has God created a world where we do need sleep? It's a reminder you don't control the world. 
you haven't got the capacity to make everything work out. Here is Jesus asleep. He looks powerless and weak. What the disciples have found when he wakes up is also not just a man who's tired, but he's God who rules. And whether he's asleep or awake, he has control of the world and everything around him. And he will not let anything happen beyond what he allows to happen. So here is Jesus coming to the world to establish God's kingdom. He's going to destroy Satan and all that is involved in that. And he's going to destroy disease and death and chaos and disorder and establish a kingdom of righteousness and peace that's eternal. I suspect all of us have a deep, deep longing for that very thing. One of the things that life accumulates for all of us is how disordered our world is. No matter, it's only the young who thinks everything's going to be perfect, isn't it? When we get older, we realise how much of life doesn't come as we expect. There's pain and sorrow and conflict. Uh, we do what we can to try and make it all right, and we grasp and we act, but it always feels like grasping after smoke. We're never quite able to do what we want with any certainty with any finality. Our longing for a world that is right is met with the Messiah who's established the world that is right, that's spiritually already at work and ultimately will be displayed in all its glory when he returns again. He secured the world that we long for by his death and resurrection, where Satan has been destroyed with finality and the final announcement of that will happen. And he calls people to come into his kingdom with the security that comes with belonging to him as part of his family, with all that comes with that. He is stronger than any other person in the world. He's stronger than Satan in the world. And his Messiah has come to destroy all that is not right. Disciples called out on that occasion, rightly, to Jesus. Uh, Jesus will never rebuke us for calling out to him. What he does is to make sure that we know when we call out to him, we're calling out to true greatness. And the greatness when it's seen is always overwhelming. Jesus is not just a buddy, just not a no one. When they saw that, they were terrified. And there's an element we must have and capture about who we're dealing with Jesus that is overwhelming and one level fearful. We're in the presence of true greatness. There's human greatness, but there's also the unquantifiable, infinite, eternal greatness of him being God. And our familiarity and sentimentality that comes with Jesus can get in the way of saying, who are we dealing with it? Who is this man? Well, of course, it's God. Not just anyone. And so, but once we establish that, we also have the human warm embrace of Jesus who welcomes us and embraces us for those who turn to him and put their trust in him as their Saviour and Lord. So Jesus is my language, both transcendent and personal. The great God above all gods, the eternal one that we can look to, which is beyond any comprehension 
but also the one who will love us and care for us and deal for us personally. There's a tenderness to our saviour that we can never lose. So the disciples ask, who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. And we say with confidence, well, this is our Messiah who will not fail, who will not leave us alone and will secure for us a world far beyond our apprehension that will be ours eternally when he returns. We live in the age now where we're calling people to know and serve this Lord Jesus and a short little while we'll have that exemplified when three people coming before you. God's kingdom is still growing in all the world and nothing will stop it until he returns. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Establish us in that kingdom this day, we pray, that we might live for Jesus and serve him all that we have, our Saviour and Lord, the Great One, the Messiah, the Eternal King, our God himself. In his name we pray. Amen.